Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There are so many ways to find out information about ourselves. At home, DNA kits have soared in popularity, from helping people find out where their ancestors really came from, to identifying genes that increase the likelihood of certain diseases. But what's the best way to interpret this life-changing info? Coming up, we'll speak with a certified genetics counselor about the differences between home DNA kits and the ones a clinician can provide. First, 23andMe received FDA approval last spring to test for genetic predispositions for certain diseases, including Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Now, have you bought a home DNA test to assess health risks? Were you happy with what you now know about your genome? You can join the conversation this hour, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Our first guest today is Dr. Shirley Wu, Director of Product Science at 23andMe. Again, this is a genomics and biotech company based in California. Dr. Wu, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. It's good to be on. This is actually our second show about uh, these uh, these testing kits, and I just think it would be good to explain to people again that when they spit in that vial, uh, what exactly, you, what kind of information you're getting from that saliva when they send it back in. So 23andMe is a direct-to-consumer test, so it's, it's a simple process. You just order online, and when you spit in the tube and you send it back to our labs, um, we return back information about your health, your traits, and your ancestry, all in an online secure account. Um, and the information, um, like you mentioned, mentions some of these predispositions for disease, as well as information about certain traits related to your lifestyle, physical characteristics, and um, information related to ancestral origins. Now, you're not sequencing the entire genome, so what exactly are you pulling out? Right. So what we're doing is a process called genotyping, um, and this process looks at specific locations in your DNA. So our current technology currently looks at about 600,000 of these locations, and these have been selected specifically because they are known to be different between people. So while 99, over 99% of our DNA is the same between person to person, there are these these locations that vary, and these are the places that contribute to uh, all the differences between people and what makes us who we are. These locations are uh, known as SNPs or SNPs? Correct. Uh, SNPs, um, they stand for single nucleotide polymorphisms, so they're generally these small uh, areas that can differ between people. Uh, you, 23andMe was one of the, the first companies to, to come out with these at-home DNA kits. Again, people are interested in their ancestry, but also um, trying to understand more about uh, their health and, uh, again, predispositions to certain diseases. Like, Who would you say is your typical consumer that's getting this kit, and what are they looking for exactly? You know, that's really interesting because we have seen that um, evolving um, as this kind of testing becomes more mainstream. And so... You know, in the early days, it was really a lot of people were just curious about this technology, just fascinated by the fact that we could look into our genes at all. Um, nowadays, we're getting more people that really want to use the information to improve their lives and to, and to just learn more about what, you know, genetic technology can tell them about themselves. Um, so we get all kinds of people um, 
some people are more interested in the ancestry side and a lot of people are very interested in the health side. So I would say it's hard to kind of describe the typical um, person. Um, everyone has their own kind of reasons for wanting to know this. I understand that uh, some of the, the reports that 23andMe uh, can uh, send back to the, uh, the customers, like something about their earwax or depending on the, the taste of certain foods. But you also have reports, again, that hold more weightier consequences looking at you know, carrier status and genetic health risks. Um, can we talk a little bit more about uh, the decision, uh, again, to offer these tests, especially with the FDA approving uh, last spring uh, these risk tests for certain diseases, including Parkinson's and Alzheimer's? Right. So, um, so the, the human genome, um, as we know, kind of contributes to all aspects of who we are. Um, and so, you know, as a, as a company and as a product, we want to give people access to all of that information. And so that's why um, we've, we haven't focused on any particular area, but have tried to give individuals this broad um, kind of view into their DNA. Um, so, you know, we, we, might, we cover those physical characteristics, such as what type of earwax you might have, um, but then we recognize that as this technology matures, um, the, the information that could really have an impact on, you know, people's health and, um, you know, how they live their lives and, and can really inform, inform that um, may come more from that health side. And so we've been focusing quite a bit on bringing that information back into our product um, through the current uh, information related to carrier status, which is um, traits you might pass down to your children um, and impact their health, as well as a predisposition to diseases that could impact you. Um, so that is a, a major focus of ours um, as this information um, becomes more well-established. Now, this wasn't something that FDA uh, approved um, at the, the onset. Uh, there was, you, the company was actually barred from giving these health risk and carrier reports. You know, what was FDA's concern and why the change last spring? So when 23andMe first started um, over 10 years ago, there wasn't a lot of understanding or clarity about the, the right way to um, kind of provide this information. Um, and, you know, 23andMe's belief has always been that people have a right to access this, and our responsibility is to provide it in an interesting and responsible way. Um, but there wasn't really a clear kind of blueprint for how to do that. Um, so um, as these tests became more widespread, um, the FDA did decide that they needed to, to take a more active role, um, and that's when they uh, when they informed us that we needed to discontinue marketing these tests until that blueprint had been um, solidified. And so we spent many years working with the FDA to understand what the requirements should be um, and actually creating, collecting and um, documenting that data that they needed to see um, so that we could, again, offer these tests. Uh, this is where we live on the phone with me, Dr. Shirley Wu, Director of Product Science at 23andMe. Uh, the company is now offering 10 risk tests for certain diseases, including Alzheimer's. We wanted to, to get the perspective from a researcher about this particular option. What questions should consumers ask themselves if they want to know about the likelihood of getting a disease like Alzheimer's as they age? I want to bring into the conversation now in studio with me, Dr. Christopher Van Dyke, Director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Unit at Yale School of Medicine. Uh, Christopher, welcome to the show. 
Thank you, Lucy. Uh, we were just uh, talking with Dr. Wu about uh, one of these uh, tests that they offer um, that can uh, give people an idea if they're predisposed to uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, maybe before we hear a little bit more about this, you know, what is the relationship between genetics and uh, the likelihood that you will get Alzheimer's later in life? Well, it's, uh, it's a complex question. <clears throat> so Alzheimer's is, is really a, a, a complex disease. It's a heterogeneous disease. It isn't the same in everybody. There are different forms of the disease, and different forms have ge different genetic risk factors. So to start with, there are very rare forms of the disease, the so-called autosomal dominant forms that account for tiny percentage, you know, one-fifth of one percent of, of people with Alzheimer's uh, would carry one of those genes. But those are very important because they actually cause the disease. They're deterministic. Uh, having the information that you carry a gene like that is extremely informative and, and, and really has an impact on your life, things like family planning. And that is a kind of genetic testing that has always been um, encouraged even for people who might carry those genes. Can I ask what that particular gene, is that for early onset Alzheimer's? Yes. So the autosomal dominant genes, thank you for that, is, uh, is really associated with especially virulent and early onset forms of the disease. So these, these begin on average when people are 45, sometimes even in, in somebody's late 20s. So it's a huge impact, and the genetic information is extremely informative. You, you're almost certain to get the disease if you carry the gene. And, and you know, you would, you would learn that information, of course, with, with good genetic counseling um, and so forth. But far more important from a, a simple number standpoint uh, for the more common late-onset form of Alzheimer's disease that um, most people are familiar with, the people that they know, uh, the, the, the major genetic risk issue is the ApoE gene, apolipoprotein E, apolipoprotein E, uh, sort of like tomato, tomato, but we'll probably call it, um, you know, ApoE for short. Um, this is the major uh, genetic risk for late onset Alzheimer's disease. By way of background, it comes in, in three forms, uh, so-called epsilon 2, 3, and 4. And it's the four allele that's the bad one that confers an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease in, in a dose-related way. And, and what that means is, you know, we all carry two copies of, of every, every gene, one, one from mother and one from father. So for the bad ApoE4 gene, we might have zero, one, or two copies. If we don't have any ApoE4, we can still get Alzheimer's disease, maybe about a 10% risk of that if we live, if we live past 85. Um, if we carry one copy, and that's true for maybe um, 10 to 15% of us, our risk jumps up about threefold to maybe 25 to 30%, but again, only if we live past 85. And if we're, we're one of the unfortunate ones to carry two copies, the so-called homozygotes, then that risk jumps up to more in the range of 50-50, um, again, if we live to 80-85.
I wanted to go back to Dr. Shirley Wu, Director of Product Science at 23andMe. So this risk test that 23andMe offers, uh, if someone wants to know, again, the risk for Alzheimer's, is this the gene that you're looking for, this APOE4 gene? That's right. So our late-onset Alzheimer's disease uh, report includes that E4 version of the APOE gene that Dr. Van Dyke was just talking about. So if someone gets a a result back that they might have one or two copies of this gene variant, how should they interpret that in terms of the risk? And and what kind of responsibility does 23andMe have in in explaining that to the consumer when they get that result? So 23andMe takes... uh, has, has a big commitment to making sure that our users, our, our customers understand this information and um, have kind of both sides of kind of that coin. So um, as Dr. Van Dyke was saying, um, it's, it's all still likelihoods. Um, it's about 50-50 if you have two copies of that E4 version. And our reports um, make very clear that even though you have this increased risk, there are many other factors that contribute to whether someone gets Alzheimer's disease, um, including lifestyle, environment, and other genetic factors as well um, that may have smaller effects, but altogether may still contribute significantly to whether someone develops this disease or not. Um, So our report makes that very clear throughout um, and also provides more specific details about some of these likelihoods, um, which can differ between men and women, um, and then points customers to additional resources to learn more and to find support. So um, we've, we take this responsibility very seriously, and that was um, part of, um, you know, getting FDA to see how we did this so that they would feel more comfortable um, authorizing this information. Um, and as you mentioned, um, you know, people don't have to receive this information if they don't want to. So before we would show them this report, we ask them explicitly, would you like to see results for a report on late-onset Alzheimer's disease? And we provide information like what I just said so that they can see kind of all sides of this issue before they make that decision. It's interesting you bring that up, Dr. Wu. We, we heard from a woman. She wants to remain anonymous. Uh, she said she found out accidentally that she carries two copies of this APOE4 gene, um, and she didn't get her results from 23andMe's official report, but rather this raw data that she gets after taking the 23andMe test. She then took that raw data, put it into a third-party program that analyzed the data, and that's how she found out about the two copies of APOE4. And this is what she told us. Uh, what was it like to see that two copies copies of APOE4 variant result and what it meant on Google when I had no idea it even existed. One word, horrific, and it continued to feel pretty horrific for a long time. I have two adult sons, massive implications there too. Remember, you test your family as well as yourself. So what can you say to uh, you know consumers, again, who maybe they're not looking for this particular um, risk factor, but depending on what they're getting back from your company, they're able to then put it into different programs. You know, What's the best way to interpret this information, Dr. Wu? All right. So like you mentioned, you know, this information um, can have a large impact, um, even though there's parts of the information that you might be looking for that are lighter, such as the ancestry side or the traits. um, But because genomic information can also tell you about these more serious conditions, um, 23andMe, while we we always respect the right of the person to know, um, also think it's important that people are prepared and are informed about the range of things that they could learn from this information. Um, so, you know, that's why, you know, we, we focus so much on the rep- how we uh, report and explain 
these specific results back to people. Um, and the information that's in the raw data, which is all of those 600,000 locations um, in your DNA that we talked about, um, our product only specifically focuses on a small subset of those. And those are the ones where we've uh, focused on the explanation and on the scientific validity. So actually saying that a piece of your DNA is associated with an increased risk, that piece of it also needs to be very scientifically valid. Um, and then the accuracy of saying you have this version of a gene here, that part also needs to be sure is, is, is accurate. Um, only the, the pieces that are included in our reports have gone through that rigorous process, and we can't make that guarantee for everything else. Um, so obviously, you have a right to your data, but you know, use any third-party tools with caution in that regard. Um, you know, I, I think people should definitely feel ownership over that data, but recognize that 23andMe does offer that additional service um, of making sure this information is accurate and that we explain it um, in a way that is understandable. In studio with me as we today we talk about these at-home DNA tests and what it means when you're looking for certain health information. Um, in studio uh, on where we live is Dr. Christopher Van Dyke, director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Unit at Yale School of Medicine. Um, Christopher, what is the perspective from uh, researchers in the Alzheimer's community about this particular test being offered, considering that there are many different um, factors that may go into whether someone does get Alzheimer's later in life? Well, it's that that is the the great question. And first of all, let me just say that this is this is a personal decision. It, it's something that people people have a right to know. Um, the FDA um, has has made that clear from from their perspective. That being said, um, I and I, I think most specialists in the field, most researchers, have a good deal of reservation about this about this uh, you know, direct-to-consumer information for Alzheimer's risk, you know, for APOE4 in particular. And the, the reasons, I think, are, I think there are really about three, three uh, important points here. One is that the information for APOE4 isn't that definite. You know, as we've as we've been talking about, you can still get Alzheimer's disease without carrying this gene, and if you carry it, you probably still won't get Alzheimer's disease. And so, for you know, again, for 98 percent or so of people, they're going to be learning about a risk that's either 10 percent versus 25 to 30, and again, only if they live past 85. So, it's not nearly <clears throat> as informative, deterministic, uh, and definite as, as it would be, say, for the autosomal dominant genes that we talked about before. So the second point is that there is you know, very likely a certain amount of distress, a psychological distress associated with the information. That has been studied uh, in, um, in research, uh, in the research context. So there have been some very good studies done um, called the REVEAL studies. Of, in, of disclosing this information to people, but the conclusions all pertain to people who learned about it in a very careful research context with genetic counselors involved, um, screening out people who may have high levels of anxiety uh, about the issue to begin with, and following them carefully you know, for, for a year. And, and by the way, those studies do show in general in, the, in that context that there, there doesn't seem to be 
uh, a, a great deal of psychological harm to the information, at least in the short term. And that's something we, we you know, probably talk a bit more about in detail. But the third, the third issue is probably the most important, which is at present, you know, with today's science, um, there's just not a whole lot somebody can do learning of this risk. There's not a whole lot that they can do to, to mitigate it. And I think that's the thing that, that may change in the years to come. That's the single most important issue that I think would cause uh, you know, experts to change their view on this. Uh, Dr. Wu, how do you respond, again, uh, with what uh, Christopher Van Dyke was saying? To date, no, no known cure for Alzheimer's, no definitive preventative measures to decrease the risk for this disease. What is the value for people taking this particular uh, risk test to find out if they might be predisposed to Alzheimer's? Right. So all of these concerns are definitely concerns that we've recognized um, and that we've taken great pains in developing this report for Alzheimer's um, to address. And so, you know, we've, we've definitely, um, we, we definitely think that people have a right to know this information if they want it. And so our, our goal is to help educate customers help them understand the different sides of the issue, um, and if they want to still receive this information, to help them receive that. So, you know, we want to help people access this, but also benefit from it. Um, and that includes that kind of helping them understand all the implications um, so that when they do decide, it is an informed decision. Um, we don't think it is necessarily our, our job to determine for someone else whether they should learn a piece of information about themselves. Our job is to help them um, get that information and get it in a way that they feel like they can use it. And we have seen that customers um, do feel empowered after receiving this information. Obviously, everyone is different, um, but many customers, um, you know, have are seeking out this information for one reason or another. We help them get that information in a context that they can understand, and then they they feel like they have you know a piece of information about themselves that they didn't before that they can now use to kind of inform the rest of their lives. Um, some people choose to seek out research opportunities to live a healthier lifestyle, um, and it's all motivated by this knowledge of themselves. Um, and I think the research component is very interesting because we're finding more studies um, that want to look specifically at people with certain genetic characteristics um, to see what um, prevention might be effective, um, what might contribute to whether someone develops a disease or not. And I think that's one area where actually broader access to um, genetic testing could actually um, work very well with kind of the research efforts in this area. Dr. Shirley Wu is Director of Product Science at 23andMe. Uh, thank you so much for talking with us today, Dr. Wu. It's been my pleasure. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the many commercial genetic tests out there and how to interpret the health information these tests provide. What are the implications of knowing about increased risk of getting a particular disease <coughs> later in life? In the case of Alzheimer's to date, there's no known cure. So would you take a genetic test to know if you're predisposed? predisposed. Dr. Christopher Van Dyke, director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Unit at Yale School of Medicine, is in studio with us, and we'll continue this conversation after the break. Coming up, we'll hear from a doctor who specializes in geriatric medicine and who has a personal connection to Alzheimer's. Do you? Would you want to know about the likelihood of this disease in your lifetime? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We just heard from 23andMe, a home genetics testing company, about why it now offers consumers tests that assess risk for diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. More than 5 million Americans have Alzheimer's or some other type of dementia. Now, if you took a genetics test and found out that you have a certain gene like ApoE4, which we just learned about, which can increase your likelihood of getting Alzheimer's later in life, how would this affect your lifestyle today? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. In studio with me again is Dr. Christopher Van Dyke, director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Unit at Yale uh, School of Medicine. Uh, And before we bring on our next guest, uh, Christopher, I I wanted you to uh, maybe give us a a brief explanation again. When we talk about Alzheimer's specifically, it has to do with a buildup of plaque in the brain. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what we know about what causes it? Well, the the causes, um, there's a lot that we know and a lot that we still don't know. I mean, the causes are, are, uh, uh, ultimate causes are unclear. We do know that there's a a buildup of uh, the amyloid protein in the brain. Uh, There's also a buildup of uh, the tau protein. And there's also degeneration of brain cells. Um, You know, cells degenerate and die. We lose synapses. And, um, and that's accompanied by the clinical features, the loss of memory and other, other cognitive, cognitive abilities. And as we've been talking about, we certainly know uh, something about the genetic uh, risk factors for the disease. Um, that being said, you know, w- for example, you know, what, are, what are the other factors involved beyond genetics? There's really a, a, an awful lot that we don't know. Uh, there have been, um, I think, some studies, and obviously you know better than me, but they look at how diet can play a part, uh, sleep deprivation, stress. Um, what, what, what do we know? Anything definitive that if we change certain lifestyles that it may help delay Alzheimer's uh, later in life? Right. So, no, it's a, it's a great question and, and one that's most asked by, by, by the public. So there are lifestyle <clears throat> choices that have been associated with the disease and, and uh, a lower risk of getting the disease in, in epidemiology studies. And they do have to, th- to do with things like um, exercise, like diet, uh, things like, you know, you've heard of all the things, you know, fish and green leafy vegetables, <clears throat> you know, a Mediterranean diet, reduced stress, good sleep. The, the problem is, is that none of them actually proves the issue because the people who do those things or don't do them really aren't the same people. They're, they're, they're ways that they differ beyond the particular behavior. And so what you really have to do is, is, a, is a prospective study, um, ideally a randomized study. And, and we, we, we are actually uh, starting to do that where we do randomized trials of exercise randomized trials of certain kinds of diet. And I think it really will take the the completion of studies like that to know for sure uh, what the effect of the lifestyle decisions uh, are. Now, when we talked about the the plaques that build up in the brain, uh, to date, when we think about ways to prevent Alzheimer's, has research and possible uh, drug trials focused on reducing the plaques in the brain? And how effective has that been? Yes, so <clears throat> probably the mainstay of experimental drug treatments has been amyloid-lowering therapies, and it has been uh, quite an adventure. And for 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 many years, I mean, the trials have all been disappointing. 
But in the last two or three years, we really started to see some encouraging signs. So in particular, <clears throat> some of the antibody treatments, you know, so these are antibodies similar to one's own natural immunity, if you will, but antibodies specific for the amyloid protein can be given, have to be given as uh, monthly intravenous infusions. So we actually have seen some, some very encouraging early results you know, just in the last uh, two to three years for those. This is where we live. Uh, today we're talking a, a little bit about Alzheimer's because it's, again, one of the risk tests that uh, certain digital health companies are providing, including 23andMe. Now, if you've taken one of these at-home DNA tests uh, to find out whether you have an increased risk of Alzheimer's or another disease, uh, join the conversation. Tell us why and how you interpreted that information once you received those test results. The number 860-275-7266. I want to welcome into the conversation Dr. Allison Ostroff, Division Director of Geriatrics and the Geriatric Assessment Center at Stanford Hospital. Dr. Ostroff, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I understand that you offer assessments uh, to test people for types of dementia like Alzheimer's. Can you give us a perspective um, from your work as a doctor on how genetic testing fits in with these assessments? Sure. So most of the assessments that I do in the office um, involve a variety of questionnaires, most uh, all of whom have been validated. So one of which is called the uh, St. Louis University Mental Status Exam. Another is called the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Exam. Um, and these are generally 30-point uh, tests. They take about 10 to 15 minutes to administer in the office. Um, and with some degree of accuracy, will tell me whether or not a person has um, dementia, uh, which is both memory loss and a loss of functional status, um, doesn't always uh, definitively tell you what type of dementia is. That's a much um, more difficult scope of practice. Um, it also will tell me if someone has something called mild cognitive impairment, which is at times an earlier form um, or sort of a precursor to the development of dementia. And so that's some of the work that I do in my office as well as testing people for um, depression, which can sometimes mimic uh, dementia itself. Um, as far as genetic testing is concerned, it's not something that I have ever offered in my office um, or suggested to anyone. Uh, it has been brought up by a rare number of patients when it comes to Alzheimer's disease, generally patients that I call the worried well. These are younger on the spectrum, generally in their 40s or 50s. Um, perhaps with a parent or um, an older uh, family member that has had Alzheimer's disease. Um, it often comes up in regards to other diseases as well. And um, I generally do not recommend it for the reasons that I heard Chris um, briefly touching on earlier. We just don't have the data and, and the treatment at all for Alzheimer's yet. We do have some preventative measures, um, most of which, like exercise, we should all be doing uh, anyway, since there's certainly data for heart disease, um, diabetes, other diseases that show that daily exercise is, is beneficial. So, uh, yeah, it really hasn't come up in my practice. Now, you have a personal connection to Alzheimer's as well. Tell us about that. Sure. So um, my mother is 67, and unfortunately, she has moderate uh, to advanced Alzheimer's disease. So what that means is 
she's at a point now where she can't um, recognize me. She doesn't know that she ever had a child. Um, she is able to live at home with um, her husband, my stepfather. Um, she goes to adult daycare a few times a week, and she has a companion at home um, on the other day so that he's able to go out and do some errands and um, take care of himself since we know caregiver burden is a huge issue amongst um amongst this disease and amongst people with dementia. Um, she was diagnosed in her late 50s, so it's been about 10 years. Um, her uncle, my great uncle, also had early onset Alzheimer's disease. And I've recently found out that um, my grandmother's mother, which I suppose would be my great-grandmother, also had Alzheimer's disease, but it was considered hardening of the arteries um, back in those days. And she passed actually in her 60s. So because so, you, I'm sorry, Dr. Ostroff, because you have um, some um, family with uh, this mm -hmm. disease, um, how has that uh, influenced you at all in terms of finding out about um, your genetic makeup? So, you know, it's interesting. I did, I did think about APOE4, um, and we do offer one test in our office, specifically a very um, advanced genetic um, test for um, hyperlipidemia or high cholesterol. And um, I was really wavering whether or not to do the test, as one of the genes that is tested happens to be the APOE allele in that um, two copies or even one copy of APOE4 carries a higher risk for cardiovascular disease. Um, but curiosity got the best of me, and I did do the test, found out some interesting data, of course, about my cholesterol, but did find out that I carry one copy of the APOE4 allele. Um, I was pleased to see that it wasn't two, um, but I'll be honest with you, Lucy, in um, getting these results, um, it really didn't change my life. I acknowledged it, put it away in a drawer, mentioned it to my husband. And I think the best way for people who find out some of these genetic tests, which could be disturbing or troubling, the best way to handle it is to certainly think about your future, about what I have done with it, is discuss with my partner what my wishes would be at the end of my life whether or not I do develop Alzheimer's disease. And as Chris mentioned before, there's a very low likelihood based on this test, which is screening for late onset Alzheimer's anyway, which is sort of separate from what my family um, has been struck with. And discussing those end-of-life wishes, um, how aggressive do you want to be in your treatment? Where would you like to live? Um, how much care are you willing to have at home versus uh, moving to a place like assisted living or a memory care facility? These are really the conversations that I think need to be had earlier on uh, amongst families so that when these situations do arise, people can say with confidence, mom or dad or my wife or husband has always told me she would want to not be at home, or she would like to stay at home. And we can honor people's wishes. And that, to me, is, is really something very important. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Dr. Allison Ostroff, Division Director of Geriatrics and the Geriatric Assessment Center at Stanford Hospital. Also in studio, Christopher Van Dyke, Director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Unit at Yale School of Medicine. Again, we're talking about Alzheimer's uh, in the context of these at-home DNA tests that um, some of them are now offering uh, these risk tests for diseases like Alzheimer's. If you've uh, taken the test, we want, we're curious about um, the decisions uh, that you uh, went through before you 
took that test? What did you want to find out? And how have you interpreted that information moving forward? 860-275-7266. I want to take a call now. Uh, Kelly's calling from Thomaston. Kelly, you're on the show. Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. My maternal grandfather had Alzheimer's and passed away. His twin children both have it now. My mother, his oldest daughter, died young, so we don't know what would have happened. But what we're finding is that all of the children have B12 deficiencies. I myself can't absorb B12 at all. I have to give myself injections. And I'm reading that there's a belief that B12 contributes to Alzheimer's. And I'm considering genetic testing, but I'm just wondering what the folks on your panel feel about B12 contributing. All right, Kelly, thank you for your question. I'll let uh, Christopher Van Dyke uh, take that one. Well, <clears throat> yeah, hi, Kelly. Yeah, certainly um, B12 deficiency has been implicated in, <clears throat> you know, in, in uh, uh, cognitive disorders. And, <clears throat> excuse me, in somebody being evaluated for possible Alzheimer's disease, it is one of the things that's tested, tested for. That being said, I think it's very, very unlikely that that is the cause of the, of the you know, of the, um, you know, the, the symptoms, the dementias that have occurred in your family. Certainly, you know, you do want to diagnose and treat that, optimize it. But it is extremely rare that um, something that looks um, like Alzheimer's disease is, uh, you know, entirely due to B12 deficiency. Oh, we just have a couple of minutes left. I, I was curious if you could talk a little bit more, uh, Christopher, about the treatment-related trials at Yale. Um, when we look at Alzheimer's research, is the, I guess, the focus on um, ways to prevent this de- disease, pushing it further down the road? Right. So, well, we, we have launched into the era of prevention studies uh, in the last uh, four years or so. And there are four major trials going on nationwide, worldwide. Uh, All of these involve treatments that lower levels of the amyloid protein that we talked about. And there are four people who've been identified to be at risk of developing symptoms. Uh, One of the ways that can be done is through the gene testing, APOE4. And and I do think that for most people in the field, they certainly um, see a difference between learning your APOE genotype if it's in the context of a research study and especially to help advance knowledge in the field. So um, so we have trials uh, at, at Yale uh, that are part of that. We, we're, we're involved in the uh, amyloid prevention ish, initiative studies that, that are connected to something called gene match where people can be genotyped to see if they're, if they're candidates. Now, I should say these really start for people at age 60 <clears throat> and in some cases even 65. So, and that, that's also one thing I would generally suggest to people that uh, if they're going to learn their APOE4 genotype, it may be easier to wait until you're at a point where you can actually do something, get involved with something concrete about it. Uh, we're short on time, unfortunately, but for our listeners who want to know more about how to participate in these trials, what can you tell them, Christopher? Where can they go? Well, you know, it's uh, uh, our, I have our phone number and website and, and information. Maybe the best would be if you want you want to just post it for them. Uh, sure, we'll go. we will tweet at where we live uh, the website and phone number. But I do want to thank again, Dr. Christopher Van Dyke, director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Unit at Yale School of Medicine. Thank you for coming in today. And thank you for such an important topic. Also, thank you to Dr. Allison Ostroff, division director of geriatrics and the Geriatric Assessment Center at Stanford Hospital. Thank you for your perspective, Dr. Ostroff. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This is where we 
Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, information about your health can be useful, but as we've heard, it's important to understand how to interpret the information, especially from those at-home DNA tests. A genetics council will join us after the break, and we're going to take your questions too. 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's been declared a national public health emergency. Now the story behind the opioid epidemic is being told in a new PBS documentary. Uh, please join me tomorrow, January 23rd, at Gateway Community College for the screening of this documentary, Understanding the Opioid Epidemic. It's going to be followed by a panel discussion. Find out more information at our website, WMPR.org. Now today we've been talking about the latest in home genetics testing, including uh, risk tests for certain diseases. Companies like 23andMe have started to recommend to customers they should talk to genetics counselors to better understand this information at their fingertips. Joining us now by phone is a certified genetics counselor, Ellen Matloff, also president and CEO of My Gene Gene Council in Brantford, Connecticut. Ellen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, When we talk about genetics counselor, tell us about uh, what your role is and how you've seen a shift in your industry when uh, people are able to get this information from these uh, direct-to-consumer testing kits. Genetic counselors are certified professionals who are expert at ordering genetic testing and also interpreting the test results for the patient or consumer in the entire family. And so traditionally, we were used to people coming in to us with a personal or a family history of a condition, and we would order the genetic testing for them, and then we would interpret it. But as you mentioned, there are now more than 8 million consumers who've had either genetic testing through a company like 23andMe or Ancestry.com, and many of those consumers are downloading their raw data and having it interpreted and then bringing the data in. And this has really shifted things tremendously. Um, when you heard about these tests becoming more and more popular as a, a genetics counselor, uh, what, what concerned you the most? So when this phenomenon began about 10 years ago, I will tell you I was really reluctant because the genetic testing done in a direct-to-consumer fashion is not the same kind of genetic testing that's done in a medical-grade genetic testing laboratory. And I think there's a lot of confusion on the part of consumers and certainly on the part of clinicians, doctors, nurses, genetic counselors, about what testing is actually being done. Is there a concern with the, these at-home kits there's more false positives? There are a lot of concerns, and what I've learned over the last decade, I will admit I was extremely resistant to the issue at first, but what I've learned is that there are pros and cons. One of the pros is that people who otherwise never would have had genetic testing and may never have received important information are having it. They're having it through these DTC kits, direct-to-consumer. I would say one of the downsides is that the coverage of the genes is nowhere near as broad as it is in medical-grade testing for many conditions. And there are false positives, and there are also false negatives. So we see people who think they've had, for example, um, comprehensive testing for a condition, and they haven't. Uh, What about legal implications? Uh, We got a Facebook message from a listener um, 
Uh, she writes that in many states, no protection uh, if you if you find out if you have a particular gene variant like this APOE4 we were talking about related to Alzheimer's. Uh, this person writes, I was tested as part of a study coming from a family with a long history of Alzheimer's and think uh, if I found out I had the AP- APOE4, I don't know um, whether or not this would be taken lightly uh, by insurance companies. What, what protects uh, consumers if they find out certain things? So we do have several protections in place for consumers who elect to have genetic testing at least through their physicians or genetic counselors. And we have protections under HIPAA. We have protections under an act called GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. It is less clear what protections consumers have when they um, have it themselves through a DTC kit, and does that get entered into their medical records? Are they offered the same protections? We hope so. We know there are some holes in those protections. So, for example, military families are not protected from genetic um, discrimination, and there are some other holes as well. So I would really encourage people to meet with a certified genetic counselor and to learn about that before they have genetic testing, if at all possible. Now, Ellen, for part of the show, we focused in on particularly on a risk test for Alzheimer's and this APOE4 uh, gene variant. But there are some uh, diseases that if people find out they're predisposed, um, you know, it's important to have that information, such as the uh, BRCA related to, to breast cancer. Um, so I'm just curious, uh, from your perspective, when people are coming to you, um, you know, what is their take on whether what they're getting is useful information? So keep in mind that when I was at Yale running the cancer genetics program there, people were coming to us because they had a personal history of cancer or a family history of cancer. They had a very clear question in mind. We also saw a few people who kind of stumbled across the information because a friend or a relative, excuse me, a relative had had a direct-to-consumer test and they inadvertently learned that they carried a mutation. I found that often those consumers were less ready for the information. They didn't know they were going to get the information. They were surprised at the implications, and they were surprised by the options that were available and recommended for them. Um, It doesn't mean that it's not good information to have. I just think many people, myself included, are ordering things online and checking boxes without really reading or understanding the terms and conditions, and they're certainly doing that for direct-to-consumer genetic tests, and that can be difficult. On the flip side, uh, these tests are giving uh, information to patients. Maybe they feel more empowered when they sit across from their doctor uh, raising certain concerns. Have you seen that interaction changing between doctors and patients because of uh, these tests? There have been some reports about patients or consumers and what they do with this testing. And what we're finding is that they're coming in to their doctors um, or nurses or healthcare providers and that these tests are not being taken seriously. And some of them report being really upset about it, that their test results were thrown in the trash. And so one of our goals at My Gene Council is to really serve as the bridge 
between the consumer and the healthcare system. We can help the consumer better understand their test, what the test shows, and what the test doesn't show. And we can also translate that information so that they can bring it to their provider and it can provide real benefit for the consumer and the family. You talked about the differences between uh, these at-home kits and the medical-grade tests that you mentioned. Um, Is is the cost of these kits, is that one of the reasons that more people um, are getting them? They're more affordable. I think that's part of the reason, but I don't think it's the whole reason, because most people who have a personal or a family history of a condition who have health insurance can get medical-grade genetic testing covered by their health insurance. I think that people do the kit because it's entertaining. We often call it genutainment. They get a lot of interesting information about themselves and about family members. And then they're kind of back-ending it in to the medical information. And some of them are unprepared for it. Um, But it can give you both entertaining information and really important medical information. You mentioned entertainment. I have to mention that 23andMe, this uh, at-home DNA test, was on Oprah's favorite things list for the 2017 holiday season. So just with a couple minutes left, Ellen, advice for listeners who maybe got that kit uh, under the tree or thinking about getting uh, direct-to-consumer testing, uh, what should they be thinking about? So everyone knows that when Oprah speaks, everyone listens, and a lot of people bought those kits. And in fact, we thought this so important that we sponsored a blog on what you should know about your direct-to-consumer kit. And it talks about the pros, the cons, the risks, the benefits. I think some of the highlights, make sure that you do read and understand those terms and conditions. Realize that you can download your raw genetic data and have it interpreted and that you can get some information from that. But if you truly have a personal concern based on your family history or your personal history, it probably makes sense for you to go see a certified genetic counselor and find out what genetic testing would be most accurate for you and would give you the most coverage. We don't want you to go and have a genetic test that may not be as accurate for your condition as it should be. Those are good tips. I want to thank Ellen Matloff, Certified Genetic Counselor, President and CEO of My Gene Council in Branford, Connecticut. Thank you for joining us today, Ellen. My pleasure. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. Special thanks to Lydia Brown. For more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.